6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 3. And one of the things you want to notice as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah, that God is behind the scenes pulling strings. Now, the most dramatic example of that is in a book that we won't take the time to look at here that occurs between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra, the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, it's an incredible drama of God saving the Jews from extinction because Haman is like a Hitler-type guy who's trying to wipe out all the Jews, and he had the power to do that. And it's by God's intervention very subtly, in, in, in very colorful ways. It's a great book. Uh, he, the, the Jews get preserved. That makes possible not only the, you know, the temple, but also the Messiah coming, forthcoming in a few centuries. And uh, what's interesting is many, God is not visible in the book of Esther. Many scholars say the book of name of God doesn't even appear. That's because they haven't done their homework. The name of God appears five different times as acrostics and another three or four times in the form of uh, equidistant letter sequence things. And they're really fun to get into. That's a, that's a whole other study of the book of Esther. The word Esther means something hidden, by the way. But God is behind the scenes watching over his people even though they're, they're not in, walking in faith and they're not uh, um, uh, uh, aware of his deliverance. So you'll see that all the way through Ezra here as we go forward. And here, this is the, the uh, we have the phrase here, stirred up the spirit. That expression is a favorite expression of writers in the post-exile period. We're going to see that again and again and again. I won't badger that, but there's a stylistic thing. The Holy Spirit is also very, very visible. This decree was filed in Ekbatana, where 20 years later, Darius I will discover this decree when it's contested. So this is documenting it here. So, Thus saith Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, hath made me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Here is interesting. Cyrus is taking the position that because of that letter, God has charged him with the responsibility of seeing to it that the Jews get their temple. That's not because he's a believer in God in, in any profound sense. He is responding to the, the obvious circumstances here. And... Uh, who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, to build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. So many scholars who see this sort of see, gee, maybe Cyrus was a real believer. No, I don't think so. I think he's just, he's just making this a political correct posture to take. Uh, it's not that he believed in God to the, to the exchange of the gods that he normally followed. Do you follow me? There's an important distinction there. But I also want you to notice something else as we go through the book of Ezra. The issue is going to be the rebuilding of the temple. Don't confuse the authority to rebuild the temple with the authority to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That's going to be the issue in Nehemiah. And many people get confused about that. And it's going to be very, very important for us to understand that distinction as we go forward. Okay, uh, verse 4. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts. 
beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And uh, so he's, Cyrus is instructing that all the neighbors of the Jews give them the equivalent of money, that is silver and gold, or material goods or livestock. He's encouraging everyone to help these people return. And uh, the free will offerings were for the temple, and the other gifts were for the people themselves. This is all very reminiscent of the Exodus. You remember this is a very parallel. Remember when the Jews finally got the green light to leave Egypt? They barred from all their friends. Everybody's glad to see them go. They gave them things. Get out of here. You know, and they left with livestock and, 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 uh, 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 Cecil B. DeMille said much cattle, you know, and so forth. So there, these, these people are also leaving bondage and heading home. This very event was perceived by many, of course, as a miracle. But it's interesting that less than 50,000 actually take advantage of the opportunity. Others, by then, after 70 years, had gotten well in scouts. There were many people born there. They're happy where they are. Uh, they're very analogous, if you will, to many American Jews who are well established in their pra- medical practice or legal practice or whatever they're doing. They're very well off. They don't have a draw to go and participate with the rebuilding of Israel. They'll, they'll write checks and, and provide uh, financial relief, but they don't want to disrupt their lives. Now, their kids sometimes do. That's where they, you know, and so forth. But the, the, the analogy is, is, I think, reasonable. Now, you'll notice here it mentions Judah and Benjamin because they're the dominant players. They're not the only players. We're going to discover as we watch carefully, there are many others that are not uh, directly of Judah that are in there, in, in the group that return to the land. Now, you should also recognize there are many people in Babylon that were deported under the Assyrian Empire. When the northern kingdom got taken over by the Assyrians and many of them were, de- you know, deported to other places, Many of them were taken to Babylon, and conversely, from those other places brought into the northern kingdom. That's what led to the, the intermixing, the so-called half-Jews, the Samaritans, which we see in the New Testament. But uh, uh, we'll also discover that the slaves of the northern kingdom that are in, Bab- in Babylon get commingled with the, the, uh, the captives of, of, of uh, the southern kingdom. So don't get confused about that issue. Verse 6, And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver and gold and with goods and with beasts and with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. Also, Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and put them in the house of his gods. Seventy years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar plundered Jerusalem, took all the treasures, artifacts, took them to his museum, which is just north of the palace, uh, In fact, Belshazzar, the night that Babylon fell, one of his big mistakes was to take those. He he raided the museum and took these sacred vessels for his party. That was his way of blaspheming. That that, that was, I'm sure, one of the things that angered God. He put an end to that pretty quickly. In any case, Cyrus takes these vessels and gives them to him. He doesn't get them all because Darius later is going to pick up some that were uh, still remaining. But he gets most of them, apparently. Even those did Cyrus the king of Persia bring forth by the hand of Midratath the treasurer and numbered them unto Shezbazar the prince of Judah. And uh, these are Persian names, of course, and the word for treasurer there happens to be not Hebrew but a Persian word, incidentally. Verse 9, And this is the number of them, thirty chargers of gold and a thousand chargers of silver and nine and twenty knives 
And it, and it goes on with 30 basins of gold and silver basins of a second sort, 410 and other vessels, a thousand. And all the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. And all these did Shezbazar uh, bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. And uh, so these are... Uh, um, uh, there's a lot of stuff here, and, and they're 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 referred to in in Second Kings 24 and 25, Jeremiah 27, 52. It, it, in, in many of the scriptures, you'll find uh, cross reference to most Bibles. And uh, so ends that chapter. Ezra chapter two. In Ezra chapter one, by the way, these actually total about 2500, 2499, but the the gold and silver items are listed as 5400. Why is the difference? And I don't think Ezra made a mistake. He was a careful scribe. But um, I, uh, some people think maybe a scribe made it change later or other. He just listed the more important ones, you follow me, and then gave you a summary. There's another problem, by the way, I should mention just as we go here. There's this guy, Sheshbazar, mentioned. And he was called a prince of Judah in verse 8. There are no less than four views as to who this guy is. And I'm not going to try it. It's not a big deal, but at least I want you to be aware of it. See, some people feel that Sheshbazar is the Persian name for Zerubbabel, who's the key leader for the Jews. And uh, both are said to have led the foundation of the temple in chapter 3 and chapter 5. Zerubbabel's name means begotten in Babel, and born there, in other words. And, uh, and so he was a grandson of King uh, Jehoiachin, who had been deported, but then finally released from confinement. Remember 2 Kings 25. The guy that was called Jeconiah and so forth. And incidentally, um, um, Zerubbabel is also an ancestor to Joseph, the father, legal father of Jesus Christ. Now Zerubbabel's relationship to Jehoiachin would explain why he, have, he would have the title Prince of Judah. And that's why some people think that Sheshbazar is the Persian name for Zerubbabel. And that, to me, is not far-fetched because you remember Daniel had the name Belteshazzar. Several times in the book of Daniel, that name is used, but it's usually, so you understand that, he, that they gave him a Babylonian name. That was their, that was their style. And it gets more complicated because in First Chronicles three, calls him the son of Padiah, which is the, uh, instead of Sheltiel, which indicates that Sheltiel is childless, uh, childless, and that uh, Padiah has uh, con- contracted Levite marriage with his brother's widow, and all of that. That gets that gets into the whole genealogical thing between the three things. I'll leave that go for now. But if Zerubbabel and Shezbazar were the two names of the same person, it's interesting that uh, he's never again referred to by the name Shezbazar except in Ezra 5 in a couple of verses. Now there's another view that the Shezbazar is really a, a, a Jew who was appointed governor by Cyrus but died shortly after arriving in Palestine, replaced by Zerubbabel. That's one theory. It's plausible, but there's no evidence for it as such. A third view is that Shezbazar was the Shenazar in First Chronicles 3 and therefore Zerubbabel's uncle, Again, it's a thin thread. And another view is that Shezbazar was a Persian official who was sent to oversee the use of the king's money and so forth. And uh, But uh, none of these... Uh, I personally lean... I, 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 it's not a big deal just to be aware of the fact there's some of these uh, this ambiguity. But I tend to lean to presume... It probably is Zerubbabel using a Persian name. That's that's because we have a, pre- a, a, a precedence for that in the book of Daniel. Anyway, in Daniel, Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. Now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and uh, came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, every one unto his city, which came with Zerubbabel. And now there's a list of a whole bunch of these guys for about 60 verses. I thought we'd go through each one and give you the family tree, right? 
No, relax. I, I, won't, I can't even pronounce them to give you much background on them. Joshua is sometimes called Joshua. He's a priest, not the Joshua you're thinking of. Nehemiah, of course, we'll hear a lot about. As, uh, oh, excuse me, excuse me. That's not the Nehemiah that's going to be prominent later. It's a different Nehemiah, incidentally. Um, there's a, and by the way, there's a, a similar list uh, in Nehemiah chapter 7, which records 12 names rather than 11. And, and there's reason to believe that one of these names, there's probably one that dropped. There's probably 12 here because we're going to give 12 offerings. And there was probably one from each of the 12 tribes, is, is the conjecture by many, many scholars. Um, and I won't get into the details of the differences of lists. I'll leave that out. But anyway, we have uh, Zariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, Bena. And the number of the men of the people of Israel, the children of Parash, 2,172. The children of Sheftaya, uh, 372. Children of Eras, 775. Uh, children of Pehath Moab of the children of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. Um, the children of Elam, 1,254. Children of Zatu, and it goes on like this. The children of Zechai, 703 score. Children of Benai, 642. Children of Babai. And, uh, you know, many modern readers say, what is this in here for us? It may not be important to us, but it probably was incredibly encouraging to those early settlers to, to, to uh, have them uh, detailed here. And by the way, the Mordecai in here is not is is uh, not Esther's cousin that will be prominent later, who lived in Susa about 60 years after this first return. And the Nehemiah, as I've mentioned, is not the Nehemiah that returned to Jerusalem some 90 years later, you see. So we'll get confused by all of that. But anyway, it goes on like this. Um, children of Bezai, 323. Children of Zorah, children of Hashem, children of Gebar, children of Bethlehem, 123. And... Uh, Children of Netopha, uh, 50 and 6. Um, and uh, I might mention that um, these are listed in, uh, in, there is an order to this. Um, the first list, listing, was the 18, uh, they were originally the priests, then the 18 family with, uh, families and clans that had clear genealogies. They totaled about 15,604. Then from verse 21 on, we have the listing of inhabitants totaling about 8,500 from uh, two, 21 towns and villages. And uh, so they, there, is, there is a pattern here, but it's, there isn't any profound insight from them all. And I won't try to mangle the pronunciation of all these. We'll just zip down through. Um, the priests start pick up about verse uh, 36. Anyway, on they go. I'm trying to see if there's any... Particular here are the Levites, the singers, the children of Asaph, 128, uh, children of the porters, the children of Shalom. They're, they're, they are categorized by roles. Um, there's about uh, 4,000, 42, almost 4,300 priests, followed by 341 Le- Levites, and uh, then temple servants, and descendants of the royal servants, and so forth. When you get to the 43, the Nethanims. Were, could very well be the descendants of the Gibeonites, which Joshua had made to do task work in Joshua chapter 9. Uh, but it goes on with this whole list. And again, um, you can mispronounce them without my help um, as we go through all these. And uh, so we finally get to about um, the children of the priests in 61. And finally, they get to, they sought after the register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they, as polluted 
were put from the priesthood. There were some that couldn't prove their lineage there. And the Tershatha said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with the Urim and Thummim. And the whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 uh, 2, score. Now this, uh, this Urim and Thummim thing is, uh, you may recall, it's a mystery as to what it literally was. There's all kinds of conjectures, all kinds of attempts to define it. There's also interesting theories, but no one knows what they really were. We do know it was part of the uh, equipment of the high priest. Some people feel it was two stones hidden under the breastplate. Some people feel there were games they played with the lights from the menorah against the uh, stones of the breastplate, which had letters on them, uh, you know, little three-letter representations of each of the 12 tribes. There's all kinds of conjectures people don't know. It was the way they determined by the Holy Spirit uh, God's direction. And it was certainly part, somehow associated with the ceremonial dress. But it also seems that God's will could no longer be determined this way after the departure of the Shekinah glory that described in Ezekiel chapters 8 to 11, about 592 B.C. So there's no evidence that the Urim and Thummim were still operative with the, with the departure of the Shekinah. You with me? So somehow the Shekinah glory may have been tied to that some way. Anyway, it is what it, so they had to hope that it would, you know, there would be a priest come that would have the Urim and Thummim to the, there's no record in scripture that, that endured. So the whole congregation together was 42,303 score. Beside the servants and maids, of whom there were 7,337, there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their asses 6,000. See, remember mind, Ezra, who's writing all this, is a scribe. And he's a reckoner. A scribe was both a very careful chronicler, and he also was a teacher. He was qualified to teach. That's going to be important to us later. Now, it's interesting that... Uh, in terms of uh, the, the, this whole tally here, the total returnees um, is about 49,897. And the larger number may include children. Now, it also may include um, Jews from the ten northern tribes that have joined the remnant of the two southern tribes of Judah, uh, Benjamin. And so there's a mixture. And uh, it may also include priests who could, could not delineate their genealogies, as we saw in verse 61 and 62. Now it's interesting that his 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 Ezra's tally is very close to Nehemiah's that we'll see later. Uh, Nehemiah has forty five extra people who are singers. Ezra had two hundred, but uh, Nehemiah had two hundred forty five. Some people think maybe this is a scribal error. Some other maybe a little different uh, reckoning for some reason. But uh, there's several variations that try to account for the difference. Even the animals are counted, interestingly enough, and. Uh, now, the journey from Babylon to Israel is about 900 miles. It took about four months. But Ezra doesn't talk about how long the thing took. His focus is on not the people's hardship, but their task of rebuilding. Ezra's focus is on the temple. There's all kinds of interesting things he does not mention that's going on around them. Anyway, some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in its place. And they, they gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work three score and one thousand drams of gold, five thousand pounds of silver, and one hundred priests' garments. So we're talking about um, sixty-one thousand drachmas of gold. Uh, there, uh, uh, um, uh, anyway, it's a bunch. It's 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 pretty substantial. But the the rebuilding of the temple will be far painfully modest compared to Solomon's. When they finally build a temple, they'll cheer and feel good about it, but the old-timers will weep because they remember the real glory of Solomon's temple, which is, and we'll, get, we'll touch on that as we go. 
So the priests and the Levites and other people, the singers, the porters, and the Nethinims dwelt in the cities and all the people Israel in their cities. So they go back. Ezra chapter 3. We squeeze one more in? I think so. And when the seventh month was come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. To get, they really worked as one. See, they're really pulling together. Then stood up Joshua, the son of Josadak, and, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Ezra is pointing, is emphasizing they are returning to faithful practice. That the lack of faithful practice is what brought them into captivity in the first place. They seem to have learned their lesson. They set the altar upon its bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. They offered burnt offerings thereon to the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every one required. So this is, uh, uh, you know, and this is a very big month, because this is where all the big feasts are and so forth, and you can get into our briefing on the Feast of Israel to get the, the detailed background of all that. Um, it said that they assembled as one man earlier in verse 1 there, and so they all agreed that the project had to begin. They were all pulling together. And we have a list of all the, the guys helping. Um, let's just keep moving here. Uh, and afterward offered a continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated. Every one of them willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month, that's the first of what the seventh would be Tishri, um, uh, uh, in the civil calendar, uh, began to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. They gave also money to the masons and to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them of Sidon and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of the Cyrus king of Persia. Remember, Solomon had his timbers from Lebanon also. But here they've got the authority of Cyrus that's paying, you know, paying for this. And so they, they, they ship down from Sidon up north down to Joppa, which was a harbor. Remember that was the harbor that Jonah left on his ship and all that stuff. And then to, to bring it to, up to Jerusalem, up to the hill, up to Jerusalem. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God in Jerusalem, it's speaking of the location, the house of God hasn't been built yet. In the second month when Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel and Joshua the son of Josadak, uh, and the remnant of the brethren, the priests, and the Levites, and all they that were come out of captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Now those of you that are sharp may notice that's a little different than the uh, the rules in the uh, tabernacle. The uh, There's a delay of seven months in here, by the way. That's so they can get organized and so forth. But uh, remember, the age 25 was the minimum age for the tabernacle. They have here the age of only 20 for temple service. Uh, it could be for a lot of reasons, not the least of which they probably needed the help. And uh, I remember Tyre and Sidon were part of the Persian Empire, so Cyrus's authority for these materials were obviously very operative. In Solomon's time, they were paid for um, uh, by Solomon. Here they're paid for by Cyrus for them. About 24,000 Levites appointed to oversee the work in Solomon's temple, if you may recall. Here they have... Not 24,000. In Solomon's day, they got 341. You get a feeling of the problem here. They got a very modest uh, uh, opportunity. Then stood Joshua and his sons with his brethren, and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together, and set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Henadad and their sons and the brethren, the Levites. And uh, so Zerubbabel's appointing the Levites as supervisor of the construction project. 
they were the Levites were earlier in charge of the tabernacle, as you call, and the, the, in charge of carrying for it and transporting it. Now they're involved with the temp, temple construction. And there are three groups of supervisors mentioned here: Jeshurun's family, Cadmiel, and the family of Hanadad. And uh, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with the trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. So they're following they're following the rules. So they're following the command of Cyrus to get authority to it, but they're getting they're following the command of God according to the covenant. That's the thing that Ezra is trying to emphasize here. And uh, so they're careful to follow the traditions of their forefathers when they were rightly related to God. And uh, so they sang together by chorus in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good and his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they just laid the foundation. It's kind of interesting. It says they sang together. What the Hebrew really means is they sang one to another. Antiphonally, in other words. And uh, the very psalm they sung on this occasion apparently was Psalm 136, if you will. And that means suggests that they were thinking in terms of Jeremiah's great prophecy in Jeremiah 33, for those that want to track that down. And uh, the song of praise is highly significant because it indicates that the religious leaders were acknowledging that Jehovah was again establishing his loving protection over the nation. The word you'll see often in your King James is mercy. The actual Hebrew word is chesed, and it's God's covenantal loyal love. It's much more than just mercy in a casual sense. It's his covenantal love very loyal love uh, that exists forever with the people of Israel. And now that the temple uh, worship was being established, the people once again recognized God's commitment of his unending covenantal love. Very important dynamic going on here that Ezra's trying to emphasize. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. <laughs> And many have shouted aloud for joy. See, the newcomers thought this is great, but the old-timers remember the old one, and they weep because this is so modest compared to the glory of Solomon. So the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. And so ends the uh, chapter 3. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ezra. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.